Hey there, you are watching School Psych Podcast. Really happy tonight to be talking about an uh, important, interesting uh, topic of executive functioning. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Maryland, and I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca, who's going to tell us about how to participate tonight. Rebecca? Hi, everyone. I am Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut, and we would love your participation participation in the form of questions, comments, um, shared experiences, and you can do that right if you're watching us live, right alongside the Google Hangout YouTube Live um, screen. There's a chat box. All you need to do is sign into your Google account to be able to post your questions there. But you can also, if you're listening um, on a, a, just with the audio, you can comment on Facebook on School Psych, your School Psychologist Facebook page, or of course the School Psych podcast page, and on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. We look forward to hearing from you. And here is Eric, who's going to introduce our fabulous guest. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Eric. I'm a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut as well. And I'm excited to introduce and listen to and learn from Dr. George McCluskey this evening. And um, I've had the opportunity to hear Dr. McCluskey speak uh, about a year ago at the School Neuropsychological uh, Summer um, conference. And so I'm excited to talk with him uh, more this evening. And uh, those of you who are in Connecticut will have an opportunity to see him uh, live at the Concase event as well coming up this, uh, this next week. So um, Dr. McCluskey is a professor and director of school, psychology, school psychology research in the School of Applied and Professional Psychology of the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. He holds diplomat status with the American Academy of Pediatric Neuropsychology. And Dr. McCluskey has amassed 35 years of experience in test development, teaching, research, and assessment, and intervention uh, work with a variety uh, of clients, a wide range of clients. And based on the past 20 years of his research and experience, he's working specifically with children, adolescents, and adults exhibiting executive function difficulties. Dr. McCluskey has developed a comprehensive model of executive capacities that can be used to assess executive capacity, strength and difficulties, and guide efforts to foster growth and intervene uh, with those difficulties. He frequently presents at international, national, regional, and state conferences on cognitive and neuropsychological assessment and intervention, and consults with a number of school districts uh, and private schools nationwide on these issues related to improving students' self-regulation capacities in the classroom, behavior management, and assessment and intervention for executive capacity difficulties. Um, Dr. McCluskey is the lead author uh, of the books of Assessment and Intervention for Executive Function Difficulties and Essentials of Executive Function Assessment, and his most recent writings on interventions for executive function and executive skill uh, difficulties appears in Chapter 10 of the book, Essentials of Planning, Selecting, and Tailoring Interventions for Unique Learners. He's also author of McCluskey Executive Function Scales, um, MEFS, and those have been standardized and published with Schoolhouse Educational Services. So Dr. McCluskey, we welcome you and your vast uh, experience, and uh, we are very interested in talking with you about executive functions. Well, thank uh, you, Eric, yeah. for here. and Rebecca, Rachel, hi there. Hi, thank you so much for being here. Um, I had the pleasure of um, hearing your workshop at NIAS 
spring conference last spring. And um, one of the things that I thought was so helpful was that you shared examples of, of students that you have worked with in the past. And so all of these areas of your expertise were made um, really concrete in the example of how um, when a student is referred to you, how you might proceed. So I'm wondering if we could start with that and I could give you um, sort of a, a referral from our imaginary school. Sure. Okay. No <laughs> okay, wonderful. So how about a, um, we have a third grade uh, little boy who um, it's, you know, just the first few weeks of school and the teacher is already curious about um, his ability to uh, sustain attention and notices that he might be very wiggly in his chair and moves around a lot, gets up a lot, kind of blurts out a lot. Um, but also sometimes notices that he is um, on topic. And when he is um, on topic, he's very insightful. And she comes to you to ask, what do I do? Do I, I'm curious about his executive skill. Do you, do you think that we should jump to, to figure him out, to measure or how can I best um, help him thrive in my classroom and not continually call his name in a way that might feel punitive to him because he's constantly interrupting the flow of my lesson? <laughs> yeah, and that sounds like um, a referral that's, or a discussion that's going to be had in many schools <laughs> during September, October, no question about it. Um, my perspective on this has changed over the years, I have to tell you, and, and probably the last uh, 15 years or more uh, with the background in executive functions and executive capacities that I've been working on. Um, I really feel that those kinds of questions and, and, um, and those issues really should be addressed directly with the child. Mm -hmm. And so I would, uh, those things that you mentioned that the teacher noted and, and asked you about, um, I would suggest to her that she have that conversation with that third grade student. I think one of the difficulties that we that we find here, a lot of uh, a lot of the problems of self-regulation that students seem to exhibit in classrooms that teachers notice are often because students are unclear of what those uh, expectations are for self-regulation in the classroom or just not really pay attention to it um, the way they need to. And when teachers sit down with them and have a discussion, I, I've noticed that you do you know, you seem to be moving around a lot and sometimes you're not seem to be paying attention. But then again, you do seem to pick up a lot of information and she could say, I'm, I'm wondering, why, why is that? And, and now I'm really modeling here a, a use of uh, Ross Green's collaborative and proactive solutions. And it's great that he'll be at uh, he'll be at NIASP this uh, in a few weeks there keynoting on, on one of the days. But I really value greatly his uh, his perspective on this. And for talking about younger children now, with mm -hmm. older individuals that are in, in high school and we see some difficulties there in middle school, I would start more with motivational interviewing. But with children this young, it's simply a matter of, of drawing attention to the things that you want them to notice and wondering why it is that they're behaving the way they are. Then mentioning, well, you know, when you when you are like that, sometimes it's difficult for me to connect with you or for you to, you know, whatever the case may be, the things that she's most concerned about, the behavior, you know, leading to, let the child know about that and then suggest that maybe there's something we should do together to figure out how we could make sure that you get what you need to out of the classroom. 
Uh, of course, that that assumes that they want to be there <laughs> and that they enjoy school and they like school and and they want to get something out of it, or at least they like the teacher. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the motivators that we have in the younger ages are you know much more a bit more externally driven than when we get to that that component of self determination that seems to come around in middle school. So at this point, you know, we're sometimes we're, we're sort of like dangling some carrots, but we're really trying to get at internal motivations, even with ch children as young as four, five, six, and see if we can't draw on those, because usually they are they are uh, interested in, in cooperating and getting something out of school and being on the same page with everybody else. I think they're often just really not there, and I think they're just unaware of it. And of course, the awareness is the executive function component. Are you aware of what you should be doing and when you should be doing it? And then, and then if we keep noticing it, then, you know, if she has that conversation and it keeps happening, uh, despite the cues she may be giving, now we know that you're, you're, the teacher is now giving some when cues. You know, this is when you should be doing the things we talked about. And if that's not working, maybe we should be thinking about the uh, possibility here that there's a how difficulty, executive skill difficulty, in that while, while the teacher is cueing him for the when, he is unable to produce the how. He doesn't know how to, how to behave or, or do the things that she's asking him to do. In which case, now we have to talk about strategies that could be used to help that child to learn what it is the teacher wants them to do. And that's where the school psychologist could really come in as possibly offering some suggestions for uh, possibly what those strategies might be. But again, I would first have that discussion with the child. What do you think you could do to make this happen for you? But of course, I think there's some things that they just really don't understand how to make better. Yeah. And um, in those situations, I, I found a lot of times, if you can find what that skill is and turn it into some kind of a game that can be played with a child and to get them to repeat it so that they begin to understand what it is you're looking for and can produce it. Because very often executive uh, skill difficulties are not something that, that are easily learned but they can be they can be practiced and learned in that way. It's sort of like riding a bike, you know. You get on the bike and you start pedaling and then I'll tell you how well you're doing. So you're getting feedback about how to do it and suddenly you, you kind of caught it. So the brain very often learns from that kind of going through the procedures or the steps and then getting better at it. And so the more times that they go through doing what you ask them to do and getting feedback about it, the more likely they're gonna begin to start having that capacity to control that for themselves and regulate it. Hmm. Yeah. Do, do you think that for some children, you mentioned that, you know, if they, given that they want to be there, for some children for whom the demand or the expectations feels really uncomfortable um, in terms of sustaining attention or, or, or focusing or independent work or what, whatever it may be, do you think that there um, are, that our expectations of them in general in, in classrooms are, um, appropriate, high, too high, not high enough. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think it varies, and I, I know you know teacher expectations are driven very much today by the pressures that are placed on them for student performance and achievement. And I think that's kind of getting out of hand a bit. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of teachers feel a lot of pressure, and and they they feel that if, if students aren't doing what they expect them to do, and they aren't learning the amount that they want them to learn. That there's going to be a problem when spring comes and testing occurs. Yeah. So if any, there's there's just a real need to start easing up on that a bit, and going back to the idea that if that in a classroom that's accepting and and um, where learning can occur and, and flow a little bit more, more freely, that you're going to have students that are engaged and interested in learning, and those scores are going to be 
better in the in the long run anyway. So I think sometimes we get too much focused on drilling and and being very specific about what the expectations are for the way they're going to respond to tests in, in, in March or April, that we forget about the natural ways that children may want to learn in classrooms mm -hmm. and, and how to bring that out and how to make it interesting and more fun. And sometimes if I if I see a, a student who seems really disengaged, I might just say, it doesn't seem like school is very much fun for you. Uh, and, and say, you know, what do you think? And uh, let them respond or just say, I noticed that you don't seem to be enjoying yourself very much at all when you, you know, when we're doing these activities, what's up? And I think that's, um, you know, that entry into that world of theirs. And then if they do say, yeah, I really don't like school, you say, well, maybe we could find a way to make it more interesting for you and, and have that dialogue with them. And, and there might be some things that could be suggested by the teacher, just minor little modifications of the way they do things. But also those conversations may give teachers insight into how to kind of make things in generally a, a bit more interesting for all students. Yeah. Uh, because the key, I think, to, to education at the early ages is having the students engaged and liking it and enjoying it. And the more they're, they're enjoying it and having fun, the less they're thinking about the hard work they're doing. And you can get them to do some pretty hard work if you've got them engaged and they're, and they're liking it. Um, so I think we kind of missed that piece, you know, about let's start with the let's have fun and get engaged and jump right to let's get some work done here because we got things to do by April. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit too business uh, business oriented these days, I think. <laughs> Great. You mentioned, you know, uh, dangling the carrot and kind of the extrinsic uh, motivation versus intrinsic. I, I oftentimes when I suggest to a teacher, you know, let, let's give some sort of a reward or a reinforce, um, they shy away from that because they feel like, well, they should be internally motivated. They should want this grade. They should want to do better. You know, I shouldn't have to give them these things or give them free computer time or whatever that is. Is there any way to help um, help this child along to, to get to that point where they can be in, intrinsically motivated? Or what, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, I think eventually, they, they, uh, we hope that they all get there. And, and sometimes it takes quite a while, actually, for some individuals to kind of find that, uh, that internal motivation that really gets them uh, engaged or interested in school. And some individuals, they go through high school and don't find it. But I think at the younger ages, it's important for teachers to kind of realize uh, that when you do set up a, uh, a behavior management or modification program that involves some reinforcement, um, especially positive, that um, it's really the, the model that we pretty much all engage in. I mean, I, I, you know, I mentioned to parents and teachers, you know, they say this feels like bribery. And I say, well, do you work for no paycheck? <laughs> it's, it's unlikely that, that anybody's, you know, out there doing that just because they love it so much. And that's OK if you don't pay me. Um, but the reality is, you know, there, there are contingencies and we have expectations and they and they do those external rewards do serve as pulling individuals. Um, let's say the reward center of the brain, you know, the immediate gratification center of the brain wants to do things that are fun all the time. Of course, school is not fun all the time. And teachers have these things that they expect you to do. So the external demands become very great. So it can't just be from that internal desire, because some students are internally desiring lots of other things besides work. Um, and so the teacher sometimes has to entice them, you know, try to get that internal uh, mechanism of reward engaged and offering a little concrete, tangible uh, reinforcement is something that pulls them over to get them engaged and get them doing what we ask them to do. But also by doing that, you have to appreciate it is the first step in what we want to call delayed gratification and building a, a self-determined frontal lobe within a child because it's not that they're immediately getting exactly what they want. It's no, first you have to do this for me 
and then you can get what you want. And if we're talking about two or three year olds, if we can wait a minute, that's great, right? Uh, and by the time we get to school, if we can if we can wait a half an hour or half a day or a week, uh, you know, full day or a week. See, so we want to we want to try to to um, engage in lengthening that amount of time before the reinforcement occurs. And so we've got this building of delayed gratification within the brain. And so then when we are shifting into self-determination, that delayed gratification then is something that child can use to get the goals that they want, not the goals that we're setting for them. So you have to help them understand, we're really trying to build, you know, we're, we're kind of slowly, gradually building into this, you know, frontal lobe that we're looking for. Uh, this wonderful child that's self-regulated and has these great goals and, and accomplishes all things they want to do themselves, right? Um, but in the interim, many brains have to learn how to become that kind of a person. And if we don't offer any kind of uh, indications of how to do that or, or scaffolds to do that, uh, for some kids, it's really hard. And then all of a sudden, they're expected to just be self-determined. Um, and they want to be, but they have no idea how. So it's always important to think about that difference between the um, that capacity of when, you know, knowing when you want to do it and how. Do you have any idea how to accomplish that? And so think of it as, as teaching, you know, children ways to get there eventually and gradually shaping it so, so that that brain emerges in middle school. Yeah. I am thinking still about my third grader, a third grader, and um, let's say you consult with the teacher and the teacher tries having the conversation and it does, um, it, it's sort of good for their relationship, but the teacher is continuing to notice and parents are noticing that, you know, uh, he's not able to be very productive in class and so she's worried that he's falling behind. So it gets to the level of she's gone through, you know, her toolbox of um, sort of whole group or, you know, sort of class-wide interventions that she thought might help and it's not working. So then um, he's referred to you for more, to gather more information. Do you start, um, do you always start with a specific kind of tool? Do you always start maybe with a behavioral screen and, or where do you begin in terms of assessment? Mm. Uh, that's well, it depends on what the markers are or the indications of what the teacher is telling me and what we can observe about the child. Mm -hmm. uh, if we suspect that there may be some difficulties, some, some pretty deep rooted difficulties, um, then I, I'm still inclined to start, um, you know, with, with more of a motiv motivational interviewing approach. And, and this is, I especially like the book by Stephen Rolnick that um, it's called Motivational Interviewing in the Schools. Mm -hmm. And it starts, um, you know, modeling this and shaping it for students age six to 18. And so within that range, we find that we can, we can sit down and have these conversations with students, no matter what age they are, to try to understand their perspective on things and, and why, why things are happening the way they are. And I think that's, that's really important. I know we, we tend to want to think about uh, the need sometimes to diagnose and get labels and, and, and get those applied. But sometimes we need to focus more on, as, as we, we talk about, you know, solution-oriented or problem-oriented focus here to get solutions or to help the individual find ways that they can move forward. And I think that that discussion that we want to have with them initially has to draw them in and make them feel like they're being heard and being understood so that we can get to the root of what actually is happening. Uh, and sometimes because we need to build some trust and if students really are in pain or if they're feeling, you know, they're maybe experiencing some trauma or anxiety or depression or, or other kind of internalizing uh, situations that are not so easy to see externally or even if they're having conduct problems, 
um, there's probably some basis for that that we have to try to understand. And very often we can get there if we, we engage in this kind of an open interview with the student. And I like that in motivational interview, they talk about interviews as opposed to assessments or diagnosis, um, you know, uh, or even, even counseling. You know, the idea here is that we're interviewing the individual and it's an, uh, you know, there are two individuals here and they're, they're having a discussion about what's going on. And instead of uh, me having that adult perspective and trying to figure out what's underlying all this and, you know, and applying my clinical skills to figure this all out, um, I've got to hear some more from the child before I start thinking about that. And then it might be necessary to really, uh, you know, engage the parents, have a talk with them, uh, you know, have your discussion with the teacher, have a discussion with the parents and, and try through those interviews to start putting things together. Now, I also find it very helpful to engage in some basic standardized assessment work with students because sometimes there's there's um, a need to just sort of engage in a process with them that is not directly talking about problems or difficulties or, or their experiences directly just so they get used to you as a person and understand and just have some way to interact with you so they begin to build some trust first so sometimes I, I will do some, some activities with students to kind of get them you know to that point where they're more comfortable um, and then I also get to understand a lot more about how they're functioning in terms of their thinking and their perceiving and often their emotional reactions. So I find, I find standardized testing to be very helpful in helping me to begin to understand children. And sometimes um, if there just seems to be a little bit of tension in the air, I might just jump in some act activities with assessment to just sort of break the ice and get, get moving and just start start that way and then and then after a while that that conversation emerges sometimes halfway through the testing process but um uh yeah so you just want to be able to have you know that right moment to have that that interactive interview with the child um but i i, I can't emphasize enough um in the work that i've done over the years assessment is very important and it's something it's a process that if you do it right children learn something about themselves it's not just what we gain about them or what we know about them it's what they begin to understand about themselves and it's very rare that someone sits down the table across from you for for hours at a time and attends to you <laughs> and has that one-to-one -one engagement that's stuff that doesn't happen to kids very often so it can be a very enlightening process for them when you think about it that's great. I, I am wondering, Dr. McCluskey, um, with uh, the sort of emergence, I guess, or, or uh, awareness of executive functions and executive capacities probably in the last decade, um, how has your concept of the, of the construct itself evolved and uh, what do you consider essential components um, for measuring, especially with your particular scale? Yeah, I, it's it's really it's changed a lot. When I when I first um, started looking into this concept in, in the early 1990s, um, it was new to me. Uh, I understood frontal cortex. I understood what we thought was happening there, and planning was usually the word used most frequently mm. um, as far as frontal lobe you know functions. Executive functions then became to be you know a, a term that was applied more more generally to a lot of other kinds of of um, things that we think that frontal lobes do In, inhibition working memory, planning, shifting, um, flexibility. There's all, all these capacities. And what I've, what I've come to understand over the last you know, 25, 30, 30 years is that all these things that we talk about, planning, inhibition, attention, working memory, these are all things that the brain does. 
And in that sense, we have to think about the parts of the brain doing those things as the workers. And executive functions are really a supervisory system of the brain. So in terms of supervision, frontal lobes aren't those things like planning, inhibition. They are the awareness of the need to do those things and the awareness of how to do those things. And so executive function is the when. Do you know when to do these things? So it's not inhibition is an executive function. There's an executive function associated with inhibition. And it's being aware of when you should inhibit impulsive responding. But then there's that aspect of, do you know how to inhibit impulsive responding? And that's the executive skill component. And so within a neural network, the first one to be activated would be the awareness of knowing when. And then that would trigger the awareness uh, or the activation of, of the network of where of how to do it. And then you'll see a spread of activation through the brain, and now you're doing it. The areas of the brain necessary for inhibition or working memory or planning or whatever it is are now engaged in that process. So these psychological constructs aren't executive functions themselves. Executive function and skills are the awareness of when and how, and that's a frontal lobe function strictly. And I think that with working memory especially gets confused because working memory is holding and manipulating information. This does occur in the frontal lobes, you know, prefrontal cortex, dorsal lateral mainly, but the cueing of that, you see, if you're not aware that you should be using working memory, you may have great working memory and just not use it in the classroom. Uh, you may be aware of the need to use it, but have no idea how. And so you're underutilizing what you have because you have no strategies for applying it. So working memory itself is that capacity but then can it be supervised by knowing how best to be efficient with it? And do you know when to, you should be using it? So to me, that's the executive piece, that awareness. And then interventions have to be either skill oriented, teaching them how to do it or function oriented, helping them understand when they should be, you know, picking up the cues in the environment to, to know what they have. And so there's a lot of, again, that, that building of understanding of what your brain can do and how it can do it and when you need to do it. And then if not, you know, that strategy, do you understand how to do this? No, let's, let's come up with a strategy that'll get it done for you. That's great. How do you, um, you've got this conceptualized so nicely, <laughs> so clearly. So uh, I'm sort of taking notes as we're, we're talking here. Um, uh, for those of us who are perhaps, um, you know, just, just kind of coming to terms with how to measure these things, um, uh, I'm, I love the, the, you know, the what, the when, the how sort of thing. Um, in terms of your tool, especially the one you developed or perhaps the, the CFEI or CEFI or the, the brief or some of those other tools, um, how might you uh, sort of help us through how we would use that? And, and Well, yeah, I think, um, and this is interesting, in, in three weeks at, at NIAF, there's going to be a panel discussion. Uh, with Jack Naglieri and, and Peter Isquith okay. and Gerald Joya and um, Dean Dellis and myself about executive functions and rating scales. And I think um, the, the distinction that I'm, I have here is that the way my scale is, is structured is that um, on a scale from zero to five, you rate individuals and, if, and, and fours and fives are indicating executive function strengths. And that means you're rating the individual uh, and the response being they do this without being told. Uh, you know, frequently or almost always do it without being told, which means that suggests that the how and the when are there because there's no, no cueing necessary. So fours and fives on my scale, and that's how you rate it. So if you ask about attention or, or working memory, the executive functions associated with those, we're getting the rating to tell us about the, about the when and, and the how. And so four or five means there's a strength. If you're being rated two or three, uh, those are responses that say, well, 
um, he'll do it, but only if I tell him or he'll seldom do it unless I tell him to. Well, if he'll do it when you tell him, that means you're the when because they and they have the how because then once you tell them, they do it. So the twos and threes suggest a function deficit. You get to zeros and ones and individuals are telling us, even when I walk them through the steps, they can't do it. We suggest there's really a skill deficit there. So for me, the ratings are going to indicate whether there's a deficit in skill or function or, or a strength. And if you simply rate frequency of something occurring, I'm not sure whether it's a skill deficit or a, uh, or a function deficit or what exactly is going on, because it may be the workers that you're talking about. So the way I try to structure the scale was to get at the, the executive function and skill components um, and to fit the theoretical model. And so with rating scales, I think that's, you know, that's where we have to be. We need to know, is this a function or a skill uh, weakness so that we can address it appropriately? And let's talk about all the different executive capacities that we could possibly have, because we have a profile of strengths and weaknesses in those areas. Um, children that I work with that have executive deficits don't have executive deficits in all the areas. Right. They have some. And so hopefully the rating scale can help you pinpoint some of those areas that are the most problematic. And so I, I do it very much in an in item oriented, you know, find me all the zeros and ones and then go through an order of operation for just attention being first. And I have seven different clusters and, and they're kind of developmentally organized. And so you'd start at, at the lowest because if you don't have attention, you're not going to get much else. Right. And so you kind of just move it through it that way and, and, and try to address the difficulties that you see in, in a very criterion reference manner. But the test does give standard norm reference test uh, results. And I think that's important, again, for helping understand. Um, you think this is a problem, and I appreciate that, but appreciate that for kids this age, a lot of them have that problem. And mm -hmm. so reference-wise, it might be average, but of course, it's the problem. <laughs> so right. if we can address it, great. If we, you know, but, but just let's understand this is not an unusual problem. Now, the, you know, the lower the scores, the more unusual that problem is. And I think that's where norm-reference testing really helps us out. That's great. Yeah. It's really cool. I, I, I love the, I love thinking about it um, that way. I guess the how or the when or the what. Um, are there are there are there certain tests of executive skill that uh, that you especially like besides um, your rating scales? Do, do you, for example, what do you think of the decafs? <laughs> I use, I use it frequently. Um, I was there at Psychological Corporation when the test was being proposed and John Wasserman was the project director and he and I had a lot of discussions about structuring it and uh, and response scoring and lots of other things. But and I've liked the test from the beginning. I think it's it's a I think it's a great addition uh, to our batteries and I think it's a great addition to the field. I also like the Wisconsin card sorting test a lot. And there's different ways you have to use the assessments. And I, you know, my, my book, Essential of Executive Function Assessment, got 400 pages on, on talking about assessment. It's a bit more much, but, um, but really, when you talk about norm reference assessment, you have to appreciate that standardized assessment, as we do it, is very, it's very, direct, very directive in the sense that when we standardize tests, the first step in standardization is standardized directions. We want students to know exactly what we should want them to do, how we want them to do it, and when we want them to do it. So think about that. Our standardized directions are essentially taking that executive capacity out of the testing situation, and we're going to be the frontal lobe. So we'll, we'll tell you exactly when to do it, what to do, and how to do it, 
And if you don't even understand that, we have teaching items now, thanks to Alan Kaufman in the 1980s. You know, if you if you don't do well on the first two items, we're going to make sure you understand how to do this. So essentially, in most standardized testing, we are the frontal lobes of the child. And of course, if a child stops paying attention during standardized assessment, we're going to cue them for attention. So you said that all these things that we do to make sure that we're the supervisory system and we're just testing the workers. And so what we see in these situations is that all of our assessment results are simply those workers that I mentioned in the brain. And you're seeing whether they can function or not, but you're seeing whether they can function under your direction. And so you can get 140 IQ from a child and they can walk out of the room and a teacher will never see it because you were the supervisory system. So what you save with 140 is, yes, he has a lot of good workers. The question is, can he supervise them? And you're telling me he can't because you're saying, you know, how can you be so smart and so dumb at the same time? And you say, well, that's the problem, isn't it? So uh, we have to have a test then that moves away from those standardized directions. If you're going to have a true test of executive capacity, it's going to do something like the Wisconsin Guard Sorting Test, which the directions are. I can't tell you much about how to do this task. Here are your four choices. Here's the first item. You tell me which one you think it is. I'll tell you whether you're right or wrong. This is just a strict executive paradigm. You use your frontal lobe. I'll give you feedback and see if you can fix it up from there. And so this is, it's to me, that's if you're going to really, truly measure executive capacities, you have to take the examiner out of the process and make the individual deal with the ambiguity. You figure out what to do. I'm not going to tell you. You know, basically, you're giving them the message. Hope you have a frontal lobe. You'll be needing it now. Of course, you can't even tell them that, right? <laughs> or it doesn't even tell them that. But you can see how different that is from, from what we usually do as students because we're worried about the validity of our tests. If they don't understand what to do, the test can't possibly be valid. And the Wisconsin card sort of test is saying, good luck in figuring out what this is because that's the validity of the test. <laughs> and so you can see there's a very different paradigm there. Now, inter in, you know, in intermediate to that is can you find a task that we commonly use and can you um, reduce the executive demands as much as possible? We have great standardized directions like matrix reasoning. We walk kids through every possible way you can figure that out. We show them how they can figure out visually, how you can figure out with words and you go across and you go down. And, and so we've, we've basically told them you need to be using your reasoning workers and we've cued them to be there. Now, that to me means that we've taken out the executive demands. And so you can use matrix reasoning as a baseline for figuring out how good the workers are. Then you want to add a situation that requires reasoning, a little bit of reasoning, and a lot of executive control of reasoning. Do you Are you aware of when you should be reasoning? And see, that's what the Wisconsin card sort does. So I often compare it with the results from matrix reasoning. And you've got really good scores in matrix reasoning, you've got terrible scores in the Wisconsin card sorting test. It's not that you can't reason, it's you're not understanding when you need to or have strategies for how to. If I show them to you, you yeah, your workers are there, you can reason, but the question is, can you do that independent of me? And so I'm looking at cascading production dec uh, decrements, start with the ability and then add executive capacities. And if the scores go down, you know that the problem is the executive capacity, not the workers. And so now I have to find tests of the workers and then find tests that add the executive capacities. And that's what the Dallas Kaplan Executive Function Scale does so well. Yeah. It actually has that built into the format of the test. And I even suggested that for the NEPSI 2 they build that into every test. Rather than have an executive function domain, have an executive component to every domain that you assess so that you can first assess the workers and then add some executive demands to the task and see what happens when you do that. And so I'll, I will use 
design copying from the NEPSI or other places, and then use the Ray Complex figure. And see there, I've just stepped, I've just stepped the, up, you know, the executive demands because there's no way you can do the Ray without having some executive control. But you can do design copy, you know, make yours look like this and put it in that little box. Uh, those designs usually are simple enough, but then when you get to the Ray, you've got to have some aspect of executive control to do it. And that's where I see many kids kind of falling down. So it's really that distinction between the workers and the, and the supervisory system that I'm trying to make with standardized testing. Wow. That's great. That's so helpful. Do you think that it's that same distinction between the workers and the supervisory system that creates the different profiles sometimes between home and school? Or could that, could that be one possible, you know, maybe in one environment where there is someone acting as their frontal lobe and then the other there isn't? Yeah. Uh, and I think that happens frequently. And, and of course, we've standardized the teacher form of my rating scale and there are and, and any rating scales that you could get. I mean, they can they can offer what we're talking about here. But having the parent and the teacher perspective is is really critical. And it's interesting that sometimes people expect a high correlation between the two. Um, the reality is you're often going to get very different results and that doesn't invalidate or make unreliable the ratings. It just tells you there there's a big difference here in what's happening at home, what's happening at school. And it can go either way. I have parents who don't really demand much in the way of executive control at home or self-regulation. And of course, in school, we're demanding it a lot. So teacher ratings may see lots of difficulty with executive self-regulation control, but parents not see any. And then the question is, well, do you ever try to make them do that? <laughs> if the answer is no, you're probably not going to rate them as being bad at it. Okay. So we can see big differences in parent-teacher ratings where teachers that looks deficient and parents, there's no problem at all. Um, and then it can go the other way where sometimes parents are extremely demanding, expect their five-year-olds to be little adults. Mm -hmm. And teachers are a little bit more forgiving about that. And so they're rating this as not having not a, having a problem. And, and I've seen lots of five-year-olds and he's just like the rest. And the parents saying, no, no, he's got to be better than this. I think there's something wrong. So you can you can often see big differences in parent teacher ratings, and that's a, a major advantage of having rating scales and using them with both teachers and parents. I also noticed in, in one of your uh, comments over here, um, the question here is when you're when you're uh, talking assessments, what kind of tools are you using to open those doors to the conversation with students? We talked about that a little bit, and. Um, one of them is the one I just mentioned to you about just having them. Many kids love to draw, right? So mm -hmm. you start out with just having them draw a picture for you. And then uh, sometimes just give them a little design copying to do because now you're, you're taking that drawing that you know they can do and seeing if they can handle a few demands, which is just copy it the way I'm asking to copy it. And that's fine if they can do that. And then give them the right mm -hmm. and then see what happens there. And that, that offers me an opportunity to have a conversation with a child. If they really can't do the ray, then I'm going to engage in a process with them to figure out, you know, and, and very often what I do is some scaffolding here where I just start doing some reflective questioning. Um, you know, it's, and so very often with with a Ray complex figure, um, I don't know if you want me to show it to you. If you do you think it would be helpful if we saw that? Yes, yeah, sure. sure. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to see if I how how tech savvy am I? I have no idea <laughs> if I can find that here. Um, and this is on the handout, so I really need the other file. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, let's see if I can find that real quick here. Okay, and that one should be coming up, I'm hoping. 
That's, wrong. That's the wrong one. Okay. Uh, try this one. Okay. I can almost see it in the reflection in your glasses. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, and that's it. Okay. Now, if I want this to appear, what do um, I need? So you're going to have to check the screen share, I think. Yes. Share. Got it. And now screen I'm going to share there. this. Yes. Okay. Yep. That's yep. the Republic figure. Uh, and so when I, if you look at that, I can say to the child, now, you know, you try this, but you, and whatever error I might have seen them make, I, I might mention or point out their strategy of how they actually try to do it. And there may have been no strategy whatsoever, but I'll just note, this is sort of how, what you did. Now, if we take a look at this again, let's get another piece of paper and take a look at this. Now, if you, if you wanted to draw this, think about it this, you can't draw it all at once. And this, this, it's very complicated. And the reason it's complicated is because there are a lot of elements in it. Now, is there, th think about that. You can't draw it all at once, which means you have to draw it element by element or piece by piece. Is there one element in this picture that if you put it on the page, it would show you where to put everything else? What do you think? And usually they're gonna come up with drawing the rectangle first. But that's, and then I just, from there, I just say to them, if they don't, I'll say, well, I, I was thinking maybe something more in the center uh, like maybe the rectangle. What do you think about that? And then I would I would try to lead them from there. But very often they'll they'll put the rectangle on. Then I'll just say, what would you draw next? What's next? What's next? And then if we do that, uh, you can see we have an individual. This is James's first attempt at it, and this is the first percentile. Uh, and then this is his recall after three minutes. And of course he's a very good artist, and so he was just you know devastated by what he couldn't do. And uh, because of his artistic talent, he's telling me he's a good artist, but this is what's coming out of his pencil. So I just walked him through. I said, what would you draw next? And you know, what would you draw first and then next and next? And with that, and this is the difference between internal command and then external demand. This is what I want you to draw right now. And you can see how when the spirit moves him, he can just draw a dragon with no problem. But just responding to my external demand of do this kind of drawing right now, it's a simple copying. He had no idea how to supervise those workers that do the drawing. And so we have to help him understand that. And so with just by talking through those steps with him, what's next, what's next, this is what he was able to produce. So I can show him, do you see what happens when you try it? Now, do you see what happened when I just asked you some questions? So we have to help them understand. See, what you have to do is find out the questions that you need to ask yourself so that you can get to this point. So this is the process that I engage very often with them. Uh, now, am I back on? Yes. You're yes. Back. Good. All right. So I, I did was click over there, and, it, and that worked. Okay. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure that we saw the other examples. We saw the initial image. Was there other images? The other ones. We missed his his drawing. Oh, okay. Let's see if we can get a screen share on that. Um, so I'm going to share and go back to this. So are you are you able to see the slides now? Yeah, yeah. we are. As yeah. we go through? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yes. So you weren't able to see them before? No, just the initial ray. That that helped a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this was, as I mentioned, this is the dragon that he wow. could draw. See, and this is his ability. These are his workers. When when you feel like it and there's that sync up between your immediate gratification and the workers, things happen for you without necessarily having to have a supervisory system engaged. 
But then externally demanded, I just say, now I want you to use all those great workers you have and do this for me. And he, he was unable to do it. And for him, this was very you know deflating in terms of his confidence because I asked him to show me that dragon later. But first he said to me, I'm a good artist. And then of course he couldn't draw this and he couldn't remember it three minutes later. And so I said to him, and he said to me, I was, I was working with him in the home, home bond instruction at the time. And uh, he said, I, I, this, this really sucks. He said, but I am a good artist. It's like, I'm, I'm talking the talk. I'm not walking the walk here. Right. So I said to him, have you drawn anything lately that you could show me? And he said, yes. And he ran upstairs and brought this dragon down. I still have this picture uh, here in my home. It's about a, uh, it's about a two by three uh, foot drawing. Um, and he showed this to me. I said, well, obviously you're a good, you're a good artist. But I think the problem right now is not that your art skills, your, you know, your drawing abilities, it's that you can't supervise them. You can't run your drawing show. So how about I just ask you some questions here. Let's get another sheet of paper. And that's when I walked him through. What would you draw first? And he put the rectangle down. What's next? He put the X. What's next? What's next? And this is what he produced. So you can see the difference between self-initiated and verbally mediated. His frontal lobe trying to run his drawing workers my frontal lobe running as drawing workers. And of course, I could get more out of his frontal lobe than him because I knew the questions to ask. When you know when and you know how, it's a lot easier. So for him, he just had to have a, a strategy which just involved, you know, break this down and ask yourself the right questions. Now, this is called cognitive strategy instruction. And this is what he was able to produce for me actually two and a half hours later. This was 90 minutes after talking to mom. But I did that drawing with him first before I worked with him for an hour. And, and this was drawn in two and a half hours later by simply saying to him, would you please draw what I asked you to draw before? And of course, the first thing he put on the page was the rectangle and then the X. So he just basically walked through the steps the way I had mediated them for him. And th this is what cognitive strategy instruction can do for you. So this is, uh, and, and if you see, if we do that, that simple kind of a process like that with individuals, it really begins to build their confidence and show them that there's things they can do that they thought they couldn't do or help them understand why they can't do things in one situation but can in other situations. So you try to turn the assessment process into a learning experience for them where they begin to understand more about themselves in an effective way. Now, standardized testing doesn't allow us to do that. So I do a lot of standardized testing uh, and then I'll come back and test the limits after the standardized testing. You know, we tried this and this is how you tried it. Let's think about that differently. And so I'll walk through some of those processes too. But the copying parts of it, I, I do freelance. So that's easy to do and start with that. And it's often a good icebreaker. And sometimes it gets me right into the center of where the problems are. Um, but sometimes drawing is not the problem. So some kids can could handle drawing that Ray complex figure. But when it comes to figuring out social emotions, you know, social situations and what emotional response to provide, uh, their executive direction of emotions is not good. Yeah. So it's, it's about different arenas of involvement here, interpersonal, interpersonal, civil system like those designs and environment. You have self-regulation difficulties in those different uh, you know, arenas of involvement. So sometimes we overgeneralize our test results. I can give you the Wisconsin or the Ray. And just because you do well with it doesn't mean you won't have difficulties with social interactions or difficulties with addictions because you can't control your personal you know, perceptions, feeling thoughts or actions about yourself. Um, or trouble with the environment. So, so we have to not be careful with our, our norm reference tests and realize they typically only assess simple system uh, interactions. In other words, things that we expect them to do in school or work situations. 
and they don't test interactions with individuals, you know, in emotional situations, and they don't t- t- uh, test you know, our ability to self, uh, uh, to be, you know, self-determined or, or uh, manage ourselves, you know, uh, to be self-disciplined. So we, we have to be, so there I'm looking for interview questions to find those things out. Um, and so I'm always doing a combination of interviews and a combination of standardized testing and listening to teachers and listening to parents and putting that all together to try to get the picture right. And frequently I have to come back many times to the kid, to, to the child and say, you know, I'm still not, I'm still kind of confused about some things I'd like to talk about with you um, and try to clarify it as much as possible. And this is, this unfortunately means that it often takes me more than a month or two to finish a, a case. Yeah. <laughs> more than two months to write a report. This is not going to work in the schools. <laughs> if I had to do this every day, I would be developing shortcuts for doing it, for sure. Um, I have the luxury of doing this the way I work today, and, and that's a benefit of being in this field for so long. If I had to be in schools every day and deal with different child every day, um, I, I, I can sympathize fully, but there's some things I can't shortcut which is that interaction with the child and, and spending the time I need to spend with them to understand what's going on. And sometimes that takes more than a couple hours. Yeah. That's funny. You said, you know, a different child every day. And I'm thinking in my mind, you know, I probably work with like, I'm counting the number of children that I, <laughs> I was one child that, that, that sounds amazing. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, and the better you are, the more kids you're going to get referred to you. Right. <laughs> and then there's all those timelines we have to face once that happens. So I, it's, um, it's a different job when you do it every day. And uh, again, finding ways to, to keep, you know, keep authentic to the things we have to do, but to be very efficient and, and to streamline as much as possible so that we're, we're doing as much as we can with the amount of time we have. Um, but, you know, it's a field where the demands that are placed on us make it very difficult to be really good school psychologists all the time. And um, when I, I get I do a lot of second opinion evaluations. And so I, I can take the time that I need to do those and I get paid well to do them. But, you know, I'm never I'm never really uh, critical of school psychologists to do the initial evaluations because I understand the conditions under which they're done. And they're often not the ideal ones and they're not the ones I'd like to have. And the ones that exist, and so we just have to say, well, it's not they did, did a bad job; it's just they didn't have enough time to really think through a lot of other issues and things that I have more time to do. So it, it, it's a process, and it does take time. And sometimes shortcutting it, you know, what you have to do is know the cases that are complicated and the ones that aren't so complicated. Make sure with the complicated ones you do a good job, especially if you've got a parent that's litigation oriented. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So we have a viewer question that I think is just a great question. I'm wondering what you think. Is executive functioning difficulty different than ADHD or the same? Are they separate or the same? Um, with executive control? Yeah. Uh, if, well, you, if you can, let's, let me try this. Our, our, um, okay, so I'm going to share this uh, with you, but I'm, I don't think I'm sharing it right now. So let me go to screen share. Okay. And I want to bring up the share here on the PowerPoint. And okay, so I want to bring us a, a slide here that um, that addresses this a little bit. Let's see if I can find it. I'll do a slide sorter here. Give me a slide sorter. 
and be able to find it faster. Okay, so this is this is a, a slide that um, if I, I you know I can't put can I put it into um, I can't do a slideshow mode, can I? You can be you you should be able to with this. Let's see if this works. Okay, so what we see here is if you if you have ADHD, I you're going to find individuals who are definitely going to have deficits in focusing and sustaining attention. Uh, if that's the AD, ADD component, and then if there's a hyperactivity component to it, modulate and inhibit are where you're going to get the most difficulties. And so we often, we know about inhibition, but we often don't talk about modulation, which is adjusting the intensity of your perceptions, feeling, thoughts, and actions. In other words, um, many ADHD individuals is not what they're doing, it's that they're doing too much of it. And so it's the kid, you know, teachers always have to continually uh, if they do give modulation commands, they're in the form of, please walk, don't run. Please talk, don't yell. And of course, if you simply say to kids, you can talk, and they start yelling, and then you say, no, you have to stop. ADHD individuals often say, but you told me I could, because they're not really picking up on the, on the lack of modulation that they're doing. But in their mind, they're simply doing the behavior you told them you could, they could do. So modulate is a big problem for ADHD individuals and, and inhibit can be also, you know, not inhibiting impulse responding. So these four guaranteed are going to be deficient in an individual with ADHD uh, because these are the markers and these are the ones that get tagged on rating scales. And often, you know, most of the other assessments you do will find difficulties in these areas. So here are two individuals that have that same core. So ADHD always is represented by this core. The problem, though, is that there are 33 executive capacities I'm talking about that are listed here. And so what about the other 29 when it comes to ADHD individuals? Well, what I know about them is it's it, I know they're going to have the same core, but they're also probably going to have other executive deficiencies involving the other 29. But I don't know what they'll be, and they may vary from individual to individual. So now you have an individual that has other executive deficits along with the core, and you have the other individual that has different executive deficits along with the core. And so now you've got two individuals with the same core, but with different constellations. So it's almost like your flavor of ADHD. And the issues related to medication is that medication often affects the core, but not the others. And so when I ask, how's it going on medication to the teacher or the parent or the individual themselves, I usually get, well, pretty good, but... And after the but are all the executive functions that are still really offline, that if we don't find strategies for addressing them and bridging strategies to get them from being externally controlled with them to internally regulated, then we're not going to see the, the progress that we're hoping because the medication can't address everything. And so when I see these kinds of profiles, I will put the core on a rating scale and those others that are deficient on a rating scale and then monitor progress with that. And I see improvements in the core, but I don't see improvements in the others, which tells me these are not being affected by the medication. We need to address those. That's great. Okay, let's see if I can if I can uh, get back online here. There you go. Yeah. So that's so it's it's different. You know, ADHD is a subset of executive difficulties, but there are a lot of them, and there are many kids who don't have the core. They're not ADHD, but they have executive deficits. And so we have to be open to the idea that not every child uh, that we're talking about is going to have ADHD symptoms, but they may be poor of planning or organization 
or flexibility or shifting, you know, other kinds of things. And ADHD individuals often are have difficulties with those things, but they're not the core. They're not the things that guaranteed are going to get you the label. That's really helpful. Yeah, so I'm checking for any yeah. last viewer questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for agreeing to come on and chat with us. This has been. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. It's a pleasure. I, I enjoy doing it. Thank you. Yeah. And you put it in such, I uh, like, you know, the terminology and how you kind of um, explain a lot of this with the workers and stuff. I'm like, oh, okay, I get that then. <laughs> there are metaphors I use with kids a lot, you know, four, four and up, five and up. They can understand workers and supervisors even. Yeah. Um, and, and they get it, the idea of, you know, dividing your brain into these different parts and sort of like unlocking that black box that we all know we have, but have no idea how to get access to it, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and finding the right ways to talk about it. Parents and teachers really gravitate to those metaphors. And I hadn't been using them probably about the last five, six years. I've been using the concept of workers and supervisors, and it's really connected a lot with people I talk with. And it's a very easy, um, you know, set of metaphors to use to build on. Yeah. Definitely going to be using it um, when I'm explaining stuff to teachers. <laughs> so that's my pleasure. Thank you much. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, okay, and then um, as we're kind of looking for last minute questions, I want to remind everyone um, we'll be back on October 21st with Dr. Kilpatrick talking about uh, reading difficulties and whatnot. So we're really looking forward to that. But um, yeah, it looks like we're good on questions. So thank you again. And thank you so much. Thank you, thank you guys for inviting me and, and keep up the good work. I love it. This is great stuff. Thank you. All right. Night, everybody. Good night, everyone. Good night.